Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. Hey everyone, welcome back to Masters of Modern. I'm here with Jess Glenn Jones. Today's our first episode where it's just the two of us. How's it going? It's going pretty great. It's a lot more room in the room. I know. Well, they, <laughs> like, while we were gone, the other people at the office put a nice big blue couch in our office so we get to lounge around now instead of being all in uncomfortable chairs. That's not true. We're not on the couch. We're in the chair still. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we're actually going to be talking about sideboard strategy and possibly most likely a deck tech on the modern version of Merfolk, which I know you've been playing a lot recently. I have. It's been my, my go-to modern deck of late. So what is a sideboard? Well, a sideboard's pretty simple. Whenever you register for a tournament, you register your starting 60. That's your main deck. And then your sideboard are the up to 15 cards that you uh, accompany with your main deck and also register in order to be able to change them out and make your deck a little better between games. Uh, if you're familiar with RPGs, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, you know, go to your armory and maybe switch out a weapon that's better against one boss than another. Right. It's it's, it's your ice sword if you're fighting the <laughs> fire guy versus... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, why, why do you th- why is this sideboard important? Is, you know, why, what kind of breakdown, what's its main value towards the format at large and why, you know, it's one of the better skills one needs to have in Magic? Yeah, it's actually one of the things that makes Magic uh, among the more unique games, as most... TCGs uh, in this day and age have done away with the idea of the sideboard, uh, a lot of them. The the WoW TCG, which no longer exists, had it and got rid of it. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! doesn't really use one. Uh, Hearthstone, the online game, they don't use one. Like It's actually you know kind of an archaic thing now, but it's still super important to Magic and one of the differentiating factors. Uh, and the big deal is that it does allow you to adjust your deck significantly between uh, games 1, 2, and 3. So your opponent can actually have to plan around a whole different set of uh, questions and answers depending on exactly the role in the matchup. And it, it really is one of the most skill-testing aspects of the game. Okay, so you know when you're taking sideboard into account, there's many ways to build a sideboard. And in modern, there's specifically, it's one of the more important factors because in modern, there are so many decks that are easily hated out or there are such specific answers for, kind of taking into consideration the fact that you know, this deck can either be, this this sideboard card can be very specific against this deck, like Affinity, where it's, you know, Destroy All Artifacts is, for instance, an effect that is very specific to them, but not very good against many other fields. Or you can kind of pick more broad things like Wear and Tear that, like, is good against Affinity, but also has more useful effects, like, against Birthing Pod decks or other kind of things in the format. Yeah, it's interesting because sideboard's actually very much a function of format. Uh, for example, you have, you know, standard, a much smaller card pool. So there are only so many cards you even could sideboard, you know, if you're playing, like, even three colors, like, you know, as we saw at the Pro Tour this weekend, the, the winning Absent deck, you know, there are only black, green, and white cards that are available to you, only the ones from the standard format. That's only five sets. So that's not a lot of cards. But as you expand the format and go out into modern and then legacy and even to vintage, uh, so many more things are available to you that, in turn, the side the cards you sideboard have to be stronger and higher impact. So in standard, you see people doing things like, you know, they might be sideboarding Dark Betrayal or Bioblight to, like, get some specialized removal for precisely the kind of creatures they need to handle, whereas in modern, things like Shatterstorm and Creeping Corrosion, where you're destroying all artifacts against Affinity, those are the kind of haymaker plays people look towards a little more seriously. And, and something that's also very interesting about uh, sideboarding in modern specifically is, you know, really the main decks for a lot of decks in modern are pretty, pretty established. I mean, yeah. very recently this might be all changing, but classically and, and eventually, you know, modern because of the card pool size and, and the deck variety, the main decks are what stays the same. But when you come into a specific tournament, 
the metagame that you're going to be playing in, the different decks you plan on playing against or what's popular in your area or what was popular recently in previous tournaments are the things that you kind of want to lean your sideboard towards so that you kind of have a good plan against what you think is going to be there. Because the, the format is so diverse, you have to maybe change it up because you can't maybe cover every base you possibly want to. Yeah, personally, I'm a little notorious for trying to like hedge in my main deck against metagames. Uh, I really like to get cards that are not necessarily you know sideboard only style cards, but cards that give me a leg up in specific matchups. So I'm sort of pre-boarding a little. And in standard, you can do that kind of thing without getting you know really hit. For example, from I just said Bioblight a little while ago. You know, if you have Bioblight in your main deck, it's useful in a lot of situations against a lot of kind of decks in that format. So you wouldn't necessarily get that punished for putting it into the main deck. But when you contrast that with Modern, which demands much more powerful answers for cards, you can't really get away with putting Shatterstorms or Ancient right. Grudges in your main deck. So there's definitely a, a bit of a balance between both formats. Uh, and as you know, you continue to scale the card's power level up, they are both higher impact and uh, more changing for your matchups. Like, you can really warp a matchup around what's going on in the sideboard. And something that, you know, part of sideboarding, one of the reasons sideboarding can be very difficult is realizing what cards are really in the main deck that you can cut to kind of bring those sideboard cards in. Oh, yeah. Um, my general preference and what I kind of do is, is you know, especially when playing decks with blue mana in it, is my counter spells are really what I sideboard out. So unless the deck is, you know, they're good against specific decks, normally they're better as catch-all answers where they're going to be okay against every deck I play. But as soon as I know, oh, I'm playing Affinity, then those Shatterstorms or the Wear and Tears are just going to be way more efficient than Remand, who's just not going to do anything against that matchup. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the time what you do is in your main deck, you play a little bit less powerful but more vaguely going to be able to handle the different decks you might face and then take those cards out for the more specific answers you have in the Yeah, sideboard. it's really common to try and make your main deck as broad as possible, which is why we see cards like, you know, Thoughtseize and Maelstrom Pulse and Abrupt Decay. Those are constantly appearing in main decks, relatively rarely appearing in sideboards, although Thoughtseize has the exception because it's often competing with Inquisition of Kozlik, which is in some cases a superior card. So you see usually those cards split one way or another, like six in the main with the remaining two in the sideboard uh, is pretty common. And, and that kind of sideboarding is actually when you, you know, you're removing the counters specifically for removal or things like that. Uh, I like to call those kind of sideboard cards sort of you're looking for efficient forms of interaction or maybe just creatures that are better than the ones you currently have. Uh, which they bring more value to the matchup. Uh, so we, we talked a little bit about removal spells. Uh, some of the common cards in modern that are sideboarded that are really, really efficient at interacting in specific situations are like Dispel, which is a single blue mana to counter any instant. Uh, a lot of matchups revolve around timely instants against decks that are running things like Cryptic Command. Dispel is a huge blowout because you right. trade one mana for four mana. Uh, then you have Ancient Grudge, which we've constantly discussed as one of the best weapons against Affinity. It's a straight-up two-for-one. It's very cheap. Uh, generally, any deck with access to red and green mana is going to play it. Even decks that aren't that interested in trading uh, attrition-wise with Affinity, they'll still play Ancient Grudge just because it's a handy way to take care of a lot of artifact hate that they might have to face, and it's also just a good tool at slowing down that opponent. Uh, another card that we might talk about, uh, Swan Song, is a straight-up combo stopper. Uh, single blue mana right. pretty much counters anything you could care about in, it, in it, modern. It, it, it's it's very good against the deck in the decks that aren't really worried about the two two blocker yeah. and therefore it, it but it then becomes this like almost catch all answer that answers most of the major big problems that these combo decks will face generally in the format. Yeah, it, it's kind of awkward to board it in in some matchups, uh, especially if the opponent can transform into something a little more where they can actually start to leverage that two two bird. Uh, for example, I play Swan Song on the sideboard of my Merfolk deck. 
and I bring it in against Scapeshift, obviously, but one of the pluses for my side of the matchup is actually that I don't take damage from my lands. So I get to stay right. at 20 life, which means they have to Scapeshift for an extra land than usual. But when I give them a 2-2 bird, that actually gives them that way to knock me down to 18, and now I have to be a little more careful about the next Scapeshift. Right. And in that matchup, you know, you're dealing with a deck that Yes, you're an aggro deck, and yes, you're trying to get them into the red zone, but them having a blocker doesn't matter because mm -hmm. they play islands, and you all of your creatures generally will have island walk, making it so that they can't even block your creatures with the bird, yeah, so it it's, becomes pretty pretty negligent. It's definitely not generally a large factor, but you do have to keep in mind that the 2-2 bird is not a nothing. Right. In fact, a 2-2 bird is better than the average magic card, <laughs> I, I would probably go so far as to say. <laughs> Uh, then, you know, moving along, there are a lot of cards that are, you might not really think of them this way, and some of them even see main deck play, but, you know, they're cards that can sort of apply in a lot of ways, both as threats and as answers. So I, I, those kind of cards I like to say, like Kitchen Finks and Fulminator Mage are two really great examples. Right. We see them really commonly in main decks, but one of the reasons that they're so good is even when they're not doing their specific job, like even when the two to four life Kitchen Finks is gaining you is not that good, or even when the land Fulminator Mage is destroying isn't that good, uh, you still have a body to be down with. So like I was a big fan of boarding Fulminator Mage in uh, Jund and Black Green mid-range style decks because against the blue at red decks of the time, I could just attack for two until they eventually have to try and lightning bolt my guy or something, and then I just blow up their Celestial Colonnade, right. and that's essentially a two-for-one that get, I get. Yeah, you get the value of an attacker along with the fact that eventually, you know, they're going to have to deal with your attacker, but your attacker is instant speed, destroy their mm -hmm. land, which is in blue-white-red decks a lot of times their best, if not only, threat. Yeah, and the Fulminator Mage spreads across to a lot of matchups. For example, against it's really good against Blue at Red, but it's not even in the sideboard really for that. It's more for decks that revolve around their mana base, such as, you know, the Tron decks that are playing all those Urza's Towers. That's really what Fulminator Mage is for, but I just happen to have this card that I can bring in against Blue at Red because it's so flexible. If it didn't have that 2-2 body attached, it's pretty questionable whether it would necessarily be that good in the matchup. It might be good enough. But with the 2-2 body, it's 100% good enough. Right. And, and then you mentioned Kitchen Finks earlier, which, you know, a lot of decks in, you know, Pod we talked about earlier mm -hmm. plays them in the main. But in the blue-white-red decks specifically, or blue-white control decks, a lot of times it's a sideboard card because m most of the time you're not trying to tap out on turn three. But against the aggressive decks out there, there is not many better cards that are good at stopping aggressive decks in their yeah. tracks because either, you know, A, you're gaining life every time, and B, you know, they have to trade up normally with the Kitchen Finks because their creatures are normally around three toughness. So the first one kills, you know, their Wild Nactyl, and the second time around it kills something smaller, like Goblin Gat or something else, and you're, you're up for life, and they're down two creatures, and you spent one card to accomplish this. Yeah. And that's exactly kind of what the blue-red-white decks are trying to accomplish, which is, you know, two-for-one-ing with their value spells while keeping parity with all many cards they're drawing throughout the game. Yeah, if Wild Nakata was seeing more play, I imagine we'd see a lot more Kitchen Finks both in main and sideboards. I think it's really just a symptom of Wild Nakata not being that powerful that we don't. Right. Well, I'd uh, argue that Wild Nakato is not as powerful as it would be because Birthing Pot is one sure, of the sure. cards. Sure, sure. I agree with that. Just running straight up for Kitchen Finks. Definitely, that is also true. Uh, but the Kitchen Finks also do provide some flexibility. You mentioned to about the blue-white decks. You know, sometimes the blue-white deck, it can be a very grindy deck, usually goes really long. In some matchups, you actually want to bring in uh, a creature, and all of a sudden this deck that was formerly pretty creatureless, now your opponent has to contend with this 3-2 on the ground. They weren't really planning on it, and, and most of the ways that they have to remove things aren't going to be very efficient at handling it. So it, it actually can supplement you with sort of a, a realignment of your general game plan from, you know, I'm going to gain inevitability to I'm actually going to create this window and kind of mid-range someone out. Right. It, it gives you It gives you a pretty efficient attacker that's that's removal resistant and is kind of going along with what your game plan is anyways which is lasting forever while attacking them in the mid-range game mm 
Um, you know, you mentioned that you know this first category of cards is called the efficiency. This first category of cards is the efficient interaction. We actually have four categories here of different types of sideboard cards. Uh, do you want to start talking about maybe the strategy-specific answers, which sure. is our second category? Uh, well, we've already given a great example of some strategy-specific answers. Uh, we mentioned you know, the Creeping Corrosions and the Shatterstorms against Affinity. Uh, to some extent, you can label Ancient Grudge there as well, but Ancient Grudge really is, it's because it's so efficient that it gets played, not because it's so good against uh, Affinity specifically, I think. Uh, but it is also one of the cards that people play as a strategy-specific answer to Affinity. Uh, the big whammies are, you know, we mentioned those two, the Shatterstorm and the Creeping Corrosion. Stony Silence is yeah. another one. We've Huge. mentioned it many times on this podcast as a, a podcast favorite card to bring in against many decks and then just shuts down Affinity yeah. completely in their tracks. Yeah, Stony Silence is huge. One to white enchantment often can just win the game against Affinity on turn two by shutting down all of their activated abilities, including their lands. Uh, we have Sewing Salt. We mentioned Tron, a deck that revolves around a right. specific mana base. Sewing Salt allows you to exile all copies of one land that you destroy, and it, that's quite strong against that deck. In fact, in many situations, they can't necessarily even continue to play Magic, really, after you resolve that card. Uh, Choke is another one. People sometimes bring it in against uh, Merfolk, I'll let you know, but <laughs> it's not that bad. Uh, but yeah, Choke, Islands don't untap. Uh, a lot of modern decks are really heavy on Islands. Uh, there have been some changes, for example, you know, things like the Manlands and even the Temples have allowed people to kind of skew their mana bases a little differently if they want to uh, and avoid getting choked out, but it's still a thing. Well, it, it, Choke is also a card that doesn't see as commonplace as some of these other ones, so it, people aren't expecting it as much. And on top of that, because of the fact that the format is so fetch into Shockland heavy, that most people are playing with Island X cards if they're playing mm -hmm. Atlanta, and when you bring it in, they just, just get shut down. They don't know what to do from that. They really have nothing to do from doing that yeah. point in the game. And there are a ton of strategy-specific answers you could probably think of uh, just across all of modern. you got Leyline of Sanctity is one, is one against Burn. Right. Uh, it's just these huge cards. And the idea of all of these cards is that it's a haymaker. Like, if you draw it or get to it in the matchup in, in a reasonable, timely fashion, just doing that is going to swing the percentages around in your favor in a huge way. Right. Uh, and these are the kind of cards I personally try to sideboard as often as possible. Because if I'm going to go to the trouble of, you know, using up one of my very valuable 15 slots on a card, I want to draw it and be like, thank God I drew this one. Like, I got him. <laughs> well, and, and something to keep in mind with these is that different from the previous example where you kind of can play them against multiple decks and even if you're bringing them in against decks that they're not necessarily like the stone cold nuts against, that you can kind of still use them in an efficient manner. These are most normally the single target there is a deck I'm going after, mm -hmm. which means you are cutting sideboard slots from possibly making your deck stronger against other decks because you're focusing so heavy on this, which means that you want to take these cards and really use them when you're thinking of decks that you have a huge problem with. If you're playing a deck that can't beat Affinity or is having a lot of trouble mm -hmm. with Affinity, you then need to have those Sony Silences. If you're playing against a deck that can't beat Tron, and if the Tron deck opponent comes out and you're just going to lose, then playing something like Sowing Salt really helps your matchup there. And since you're going to lose there anyways, having something that powerful is really important for your deck. Yeah, now I will say there's a lot of bleed uh, between efficient interaction and strategy-specific answers because you do only have 15 cards and... You can't just, you know, play everything that you want. Uh, for for example, let's say I need to board out three cards against Affinity. Let's say I had those three remands we were talking about before, and I want to bring in some cards that are really good against Affinity. Uh, in an ideal world, I just bring in three Shatterstorm, three Stony Silence, one of, the, one of those two, and, like, depending on exactly what my deck does, I call it a day. But we don't live in an ideal world. I probably don't have those three slots to dedicate to a card that's only good against Affinity. But I might have, you know, like, two for a Stony Silence 
and then one slot I've maybe put towards Splinter Twin with a, a Wear Tear, because that's a good card in that matchup. Well, it's great against Affinity too. So now I've got my three cards I can bring in against Affinity, and I've combined essentially some strategy-specific answers and some efficient interaction, and that both diversifies what I'm sideboarding in and allows me to get to 15 where I'm bringing in and out the correct number of things against the matchups I need. Right. Something that we kind of mentioned before, but the, fo the bring up again, is that you know, something you want to be considering is more actually what cards you're taking out and mm -hmm. then thinking, like, when you're building your sideboard ahead of time, realize, well, in Affinity, I'm going to need to take out three to six cards. You know, I'm playing Mana Leaks and Romans. I need six. So my sideboard has to be able to make up for that fact. If my Romans are terrible and bad draws against them, then I need something else to play. And so you need to make sure in your sideboard you have slots to recover the cards you're taking out from your deck. Yeah, and mixing up between efficient interaction and strategy-specific answers is generally going to be how you do it. Uh, you you would obviously like to just always be drawing those big-time haymakers, but that's it's just not really right. an availability. And, and you don't want to, you know, I don't want to play maybe the full four things of Shatter Spree because that's a lot of hit, hit against Affinity when there are maybe not as deadly cards to them, but ones that are a little bit more useful in multiple matchups. Yeah. And I want to be able to have cards for the pod players or for Jund, the get rid of coursers. So having different answers for different situations is possibly a better mix than just doing one of these two strategies by itself. Yeah, one of the ways that Modern is very different from Standard is the sheer diversity of decks. Uh, we can take a look a little bit at last year's Standard format, where I mentioned a card that was commonly boarded then, Dark Betrayal, which is just single black mana destroy target black creature, you could be pretty confident you would face a, a lot of black creatures, so that card got a lot of play. Right. But a card like that in Modern is going to see way less play because the field is way more diverse, the effect is just not nearly as good. Uh, so you, you can't really afford to just run you know, three to four cards that are only good in one matchup unless that matchup is by far your worst and also quite common. Uh, that's the kind of thing where you can kind of do it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we move on to Merfolk. So let's talk about some different sideboard uh, strategies we've got. These aren't uh, these aren't sh your mom and pop sideboard, shall we say? Right. Well, I think uh, <laughs> of these two, um, the first the, the two are going to be the last two categories are transformational sideboards and new angles of attack. Yeah. And I think new angles of attack is probably by far the much more safer, more yes. a lot like things that decks are actually attempting to do. Yep. And it's normally the game plan that decks that are super linear that can be super hated out like Affinity. Um, or something like um, Scape Shift, where play these because they know, okay, well, the person's going to be bringing in the Super Haymaker answers to me out of their sideboard, so let's do something slightly different. Yeah, it's uh, pretty common for a deck that has either a glaring vulnerability of its own or, you know, is really one-dimensional to have access to something a little special to give it an alternate route to victory. Uh, for example, there have been Scape Shift decks throughout the, de the years of this archetype right. existing that have commonly sideboarded creatures. And right now, one that is currently in vogue is Obstinate Baleth. Uh, it's very good against Jund because its effect allows it to come into play for free whenever the opponent boosts a Liliana the Veil. Uh, and outside of that, it's a 4-4 four, for four, 4, pretty efficient, gains you 4 life. And in a, a lot of matchups, you can legitimately be beaten to death by an Obstinate right, Baleth. Right. Uh, especially if you know, you're matched up against a control opponent with your Scapeshift deck and you're able to present this threat. Now they have to contend with a 4-4 four, four while also preventing you from killing them with a the combo can very, very much complicate things right. on their end. What Obstinate Bailout lets you do is that, first off, Liliana Veil is classically one of the worst cards from you because Cape mm -hmm. Shift is all about having as much cards as possible to be able to interact with your opponent and get, you know, land in play. Apparently you need lands to play lands. Um, and Obstinate Bailout is such a different way of interacting with you. It's so much more of an aggressive card that the cards that they generally side out against you because you don't have creatures normally are the ones that would normally be able to answer it. Like you don't not you generally do not leave Path to Exile 
in against scapeshift because you no. do not want to give them more lands, and therefore the only really one of the only few main decked cards in modern that can handle an obstinate Bailoth is generally not in game twos at all. And this allows scapeshift to really come at opponents in a much more unique way than they're normally able to, while still being able to scapeshift. It's not going to stop them from going against the yeah. original game plan, so why not just kind of get the extra value that sometimes just blow people out? It's a very reasonable card, and it shows up a lot in modern, not just in scapeshift, but that's really its primary home, I would say. Uh, a very similar card, uh, at least stats-wise, another 4-mana 4-4 is Thrun, the last troll. Mm -hmm. uh, he's uncounterable. Hexproof regenerates. He's really difficult to remove. And again, he's really popular as a sideboard option against these control decks. Scapeshift decks have run him as sort of an alternate beatdown route to victory. Uh, but you see him the most out of Jun midrange decks or pod decks or basically any green midrange deck in the format. It's very common to see one or two thrones because he's so resilient and so difficult to get rid of for these blue-white-red decks. Right. Once, once again, the, you know, when you're doing this, these are cards that kind of are a mix of both, you know, a strategy-specific answer while also being just a different plan for these decks to be playing with, where, you know, Thrun's going to come down in decks where, you know, you, they have counter magic, and that's their main way of interacting with you, and, well, Thrun doesn't really have a problem with that. He just kind of hangs around. Or they have board wipes, which kind of yeah. take out your side, your, you know, what you're doing, and Thrun's like, well, I regenerate. Good job. <laughs> and, and that's really the key, is that they make the opponent play in a different way. That's what makes it a new angle of attack. Thrun out of a Birthing Pod deck, it might not seem like you're really changing the game that much because, you know, hey, they came to play and kill all your creatures already, but Thrun is so resistant to all of the ways that they're trying to handle your creatures that he is, in, in essence, like a new level of the game. Right. He's just a completely new dimension. They have to handle him with a different kind of solution than they've used previously, which in many cases is going to be racing. Uh, for example, when I played Blue White Red, I very rarely liked to try and go on the kill everything plan from Pod because I found, you know, cards like Thrun and Revelark all of a sudden just became very good against me. But dealing lethal damage, I could do that right. way faster than Thrun. That's not hard at all. Flying over yeah. seemed to be a little bit stronger than you would normally expect. Exactly. Uh, so the, that's kind of the adjustment, though, you know, that you have to make. For example, in game one, I could be on the kill all creatures plan, and it would, you know, work just fine for me. There's no problem. Right. But once Thrun is in the mix, I have to change. And that's the kind of reflex that these cards create. Uh, the biggest example for modern is easily Blood Moon. Uh, Blood Moon has been a really common sideboard card in... Any deck that can really access red mana, actually, it's shown up uh, at, at some point or another. Uh, most commonly, you've seen it out of Affinity, Splinter Twin, and Blue Red Delver as a card that just can occasionally auto-win, or at the very least, force the opponent to play in a completely different way. Right. There, there are some decks out there that will just, especially if they're not playing in turn one to kind of assume Blood Moon is coming down, will just lose. Yeah. Right with a Blood Moon comes down and play. It literally turns all their mana off, and they just are sitting there, and maybe the only cards they can cast is Lightning Bolt, but Lightning Bolt doesn't kill Blood Moon. No, so <laughs> you're in a situation where, and normally, you know, even if you draw four Lightning Bolts, your opponent doesn't, you know, has more than 12 life, and then that's your, you drawing your entire deck before they kill you. So it, it really is is against these decks that have normally three color mana bases that it really starts punishing them for even trying to kind of come to the table without a way to deal yep. with Blood Moon or with a mana base that's a little too greedy. And keep in mind the distinction here is these are cards that you bring in and you don't really you know, change your actual strategy. Like, you're still doing whatever you were doing. Splinter Twin is still either, you know, trying to value burn people out or combo. Uh, Blue Red Delver is still a beatdown deck that's, you know, trying to tempo people out. But the Blood Moon can come in and really put the opponent into a bad spot because if they're not holding open counter magic all the time, they can just die to the Blood Moon in a lot of spots. Uh, and that gives you a huge edge because every time you cast a spell, you know, they have to think, oh, well, I can handle this, but what if there's a Blood Moon next? Uh, yeah. 
It's well, very difficult. I mean, think of your Splinter Twin, and most of your cards aren't going to be Lightning Bolts. That, you know, you're, sorry. Think if you're playing against Splinter Twin, and they play this before comboing off. You're not holding mana up to really react to this. You're holding, you know, you're trying to remove their creatures because you're trying to stop them from going off, and then they play this enchantment that you can't do anything against, and then every single answer you have in your deck just goes away. Yeah. It can set up some really tough spots that are a little unpredictable as well. For example, you know, you might be prepared to defend against a twin combo. Someone's, you know, end of turn Deceiver Exarch you, tap down one of your lands, you're like, all right, I got this Combust, I'm all good. And then they're untap, play their fifth land, Blood Moon with Remander Mana Leak up, and you're like, oh, I'm dead now. Like, there's right. literally no way I can win. <laughs> Great, they're just going to kill me. Uh, so, and th- these are the kind of, you know, situations, again, it, it just adds to what Twin is already doing uh, while simultaneously being, you know, a pretty powerful and something new and unique that the other deck has to worry about. Right, and, and to be totally honest, I think this is one of the reasons that Wear and Tear is so powerful right mm-hmm. now, because in, like, for instance, Affinity, Affinity is a deck that sometimes brings in Blood Moon, and if you're smart and you fetch one planes, you can handle the Blood Moon if you get to your Wear and Tears, and you still have the fact that your other mana is going to be producing red mana, so you can sometimes two for one them getting rid of other things such as, you know, any other artifact in play if it's affinity, or you know, you still have the white mana to deal with a scape shift uh not scape shift. Deal with and so a are, but... splinter twin <laughs> on the side. So <laughs> so many different enchantments that you want to kill in the format. Yeah, the the key to beating a lot of these these kind of cards is definitely to have something that's versatile. Uh, and that was one of the reasons I was very excited to see the printing of Wear Tear because as a person who commonly plays decks that would play Wear Tear but would not play Blood Moon, uh, that's exactly the kind of weapon I was looking for at the time. And it definitely has changed the format. For example, Blood Moon is way less popular now than it was uh, you know, during Pro Tour Born of the Gods. There's an entire deck spawned around it. That deck has really all but vanished. I mean, it's around, but it's just not as good because people have, A, learned how to play against Blood Moon and B, are now coming much more prepared. Right. And, you know, something that, uh, on the wear and tear plan, kind of to go back to that, in, in cards that are classic sideboard cards that we kind of didn't talk about, is uh, cards that just have choices. And this is really why the charms are powerful in the first place, or considered somewhat powerful, is because most of them offer just choices. Mm-hmm. It's really coming down to, I have this two-mana card that is good against three different things. And wear and tear kind of offers that in a very similar way, where I... Sometimes need graveyard hate. I sometimes need to be able to hate out a bunch of creatures on the board, or I sometimes need to build just kill an artifact. So you know, Rakdos Charm is going to probably be something I might want to look at because it's something that can handle all three of those situations while being one card. Yeah, Rakdos Charm is one of the better uh, and more flexible sideboard cards in modern because it comes in in a bunch of different matchups, but often for very different reasons. Like right, in right. Ma- in many of the matchups, you know, you're only using one, maybe two of the modes, uh, but they're all haymakers uh, in the specific matchup. Um, now, the last category of sideboard cards, before we get into a little bit more stuff about sideboarding, is transformational sideboards. Yeah. So this is kind of the... A lot of people like trying to do this, I feel like, and normally don't succeed, and there needs to be a very specific good reason to really yeah. kind of... Generally speaking, this, this is the don't try this at home category of sideboarding, and it, it is also an incredibly rare kind of strategy to see used in uh, larger formats at all. Because, you know, we talked about how linear a lot of the decks are, how powerful a lot of the cards are. Adjusting your deck from one strategy to another with 15 cards and st- and being able to even gain percentage points in a matchup is going to be incredibly difficult. Like, that in and of itself is highly debatable. Uh, the idea that you could do so against the entire metagame, that's going to be really uncommon. Uh, right. and, and indeed, it comes up incredibly rarely. And most often, uh, it's going to be something slight or something that you know is, is a little bit maybe closer to a, a new angle of attack, but still, it becomes your main game plan, so that's how it's different. 
the only real, one of the real examples uh, is Storm, which we've discussed in a previous podcast, Blue Red Storm with Pyromancer Ascension. And against Jund, you know, you frequently can't Grape Shot them to death. It's just not in the cards. You're literally not going to be able to do it a lot of the time. Uh, but what you can do is empty the warns, make some goblin tokens, or I've seen some decks that ran young pyromancer and even goblin bushwhacker as like a thing they were trying to do. Right. And so these are ways that, you know, the Jun deck might actually be vulnerable and you can exploit them that way and kill them uh, by well, just and, going off really quickly. Right. And the, the other thing I like about, you know, Electromancer in these decks is the fact that one of the most common ways people try and hate out um, Storm decks is graveyard hate. And Electromancer lets you go around that in a way that's unique and also very powerful. That mm -hmm. is 100% what the rest of your deck is still trying to do. You still just want to cast as many spells as possible, but now instead of having to go out of your graveyard to try and gain as much value through Storm Counts, you're really just trying to get as many 1-1 tokens on the field that just can't be blocked because they go around everything. Yeah, and it can definitely feel uh, a little scary uh, going all in on 1-1s, <laughs> right. but you know when you're in a tough matchup, uh, that's frequently just the case. And uh, I think... A lot of Storm players don't consider Jun that tough a matchup, but it's because they have access to this sideboard plan. Uh, it's not right. that game one they have some huge edge against Jun, but it's that post-board they get to bring in a bunch of Empty the Warns and Blood Moons, and now they're not this Pyromancer Ascension Grape Shot combo deck anymore. They're this, you know, make 8-1-1s keep you from casting spells deck instead. That's a much better deck in that matchup. It's right, a really good right. deck, actually. <laughs> uh, so that that's one of the, the closest transformational sideboards we have uh, in modern, and you, there are all, have also been, you know, like Living End has been a deck. Uh, it's a deck that revolves around the Cascade mechanic. So in a matchup where the Living End itself is not that powerful, you can actually side them out. Uh, for Boom Bust has been a common kind of thing people have gone to, uh, which is a card that you can cascade into and it destroys all lands. So a Wrath of God is not necessarily that good against a lot of opponents. We've mentioned Blue White Red Control. It's really not good against that deck at all. Right. Uh, even though it does bring back all of your creatures, but you can Armageddon them, and that's huge. Uh, you you have you have actual creatures in your deck, and if you can just eventually you know get back from the lands, that's a thing you can do. And uh, boombust coming in for the living ends has been a thing living end has done in the past. I don't think it's in vogue right now, uh, but that's another sort of modern era transformational sideboard card plan. Um, something also that's somewhat a subtler version of this, I think that is much more common in modern than than the full on transformational sideboard is a lot of combo decks out there that like are all hinging on one card making their deck more powerful will just take out the combo and move into much more of a beatdown strategy or something along those lines. Splinter Twin decks will often sometimes, if they know their opponent is an opponent that is just ready to handle Splinter Twin the card, will take that out and then move into much more of a beatdown tempo game and just have them think that they need to be on the game for the Splinter Twin, but really they're just gaining all the card advantage that they need by not having the mm -hmm. deck card that they their opponent now has in their hand holding just ready for this one thing that won't be an issue because you're really just going to beat them down with a bunch of 2-1 flyers. Yeah, I find with most players in that position, for one, I think that the hybrid ability of this, the Splinter Connect to do that is very powerful, and you see something very similar in Standard with the Jeskai deck. Uh, but... The issue is really there. The Splinter Twin deck is taking plan A and plan B and flipping, which is which, basically. Because mm -hmm. uh, plan A is, you know, game one is Splinter Twin most frequently. Uh, and then plan B is, you know, yeah, I can get that burn back to win with my Snapcaster Mages, my Pester Mites, or whatever. But then in the sideboard games, they have access to that hate for Splinter Twin. It's very common for Splinter Twin, even if you're not sideboarding out the matchup, to shift which plan you're going for and be on beatdown first, Splinter Twin second, because you kind of have to expect answers. Right. Uh, and I think that... A lot of people like sideboarding out uh, the the Kiki for sure because they're the most vulnerable, and at least some of the twins. Personally, I would I don't think I would ever side out all the twins, 
just because sometimes you'll yeah. just get there and and, and making them respect it is also huge. Like if they see one, as long if they see one in every game, you know, it's kind of difficult for them to ever say like, all right, I cannot care. You know, they just always have to care, which is the entire point, right? Like you want to make sure that they're paying attention and that they don't just allow themselves to be dead to a splinter twin because you're getting a lot of uh, value out of that by forcing them to hold open mana, be prepared to interact on every single turn of the game. It's exhausting. It, it very frequently runs out their resources. Right. Um, so that's kind of, that kind of covers our four major categories of sideboard cards. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely, you know, there's some blurry lines, I, I would right, say. Right. They're not hard and fast categories. A lot of cards maybe, you know, kind of overlap, but I think these are the four general ways that you should be trying to implement sideboards, and often it's correct to go with a mix of one to three of these kind of things. It's almost, I can't really imagine a scenario where you would use all four, but maybe there right, is right. one. <laughs> well, I, I think definitely a lot of what people do is they take, you know, like maybe four of their slots or five of their slots for their worst matchup, and then kind of throw in the haymakers, the, stri- uh, the strategy-specific cards. Mm-hmm. Then they kind of fill out most of the rest of the sideboard with efficient interaction value kind of creatures or, or like stuff like um, Ancient Grudge or Anger of the Gods or Dispel where these are cards that are generally going to be vaguely good against a few subsets of decks but yeah. not specifically all of them. And then maybe depending on the deck if that deck specifically has weaknesses uh, using the rest of the remaining sideboard slots to kind of fill up your inefficiencies and to kind of take over with you know talking about the new angles of attack, Obstinate Bayloth, where you know if you're Scape Shift, then they're going to be focusing on your game plan A, so you need to kind of add in a B game plan that they're now no longer prepared to handle. Yeah, the most common sideboarding strategy in modern is always I shouldn't say always, the most common the most common sideboarding strategy in modern is really to just build a better version of your game one deck. That's what most decks try to do in sideboarding. You know, we talk about Ancient Grudge. Like, when Jun brings in Ancient Grudge, it's just looking for a better way to kill something than what right. it already had. It's not like it's like, oh, I need more ways to kill something. It's like, no, you just need the correct mix. This is a more efficient spell than the spells I was already playing, yeah. and it adds a little bit more value in the grindy value game that I'm trying yeah, to It goes right into what I'm already trying to do, and, and it really compliments me. The, the few decks that are willing to shift a little more uh, than that are generally going to be the combo decks, which we've discussed, you know, how Splinter Twin can use that hybrid element to flip its plans, how Scapeshift can threaten a little bit of Obstinate Bailith beatdown, uh, how the Pyromancer Ascension deck shifts from pure combo to kind of like a hybrid combo deck uh, in some cases. And, and those are really because that's how you have to defend when you have a super narrow strategy. You right. have to be ready to do something like that. Well, and, and, and somewhat of the kind of next level value that some of these decks have, like Storm and Scapeshift, is... There are cards that are generally bad against you, um, at least game one, and bringing in threats game two that are weak against the things that are bad against you, but normally get sideboarded out against you, like removal against mm-hmm. scapeshift. You you kind of attack them on the game plan that the deck just that you're playing against just made themselves weaker too. If yeah. I'm playing against scapeshift, I mentioned this earlier, I'm taking out my path to exiles. Well, then bringing in threats that would only die to path to exile is a good option at that point. Yeah. Uh, one of the, you know, you could also get into a next level kind of sideboarding situation as well, where, you know, a lot of the times having a card you can bring in in order to dodge your opponent's haymaker is, you know, kind of a big deal. Uh, the easiest example I can think of is conventional storm decks in game one. You know, their deck is really iced to a Leyline of the Void. Fortunately, nobody has Leyline of the Voids in game one. They never show up, right. so uh, <laughs> that's not that bad. But sideboarded Leyline of the Voids, those can be quite troublesome. Uh, but then you have access to the Empty the Warrens. Well, it's not that hard to kill someone who Leyline of the Voids me with eight goblins on turn two. That's pretty doable. So, right. you know, you've kind of shifted, you know, it's like that card would beat me normally, but thanks to my sideboard, 
I'm now able to beat his sideboard. And that's kind of a just, you know, a level one, level two, level three kind of trumping thing that goes on. And uh, it's in, in many cases, it's become just a common aspect of the sideboards. Like that's one of the reasons empty is there because it's that new way to make the deck work. It's a new angle of attack that is still relatively very mm -hmm. efficient and allows you to kind of juke and dodge what your opponent's trying to do against you and, and play your game plan as it's already meant to be played. Yeah, very much so. Um, now, you know, we want to focus on two the two major ways we kind of think that generally one should go about maybe building a sideboard. The first one um, is we've kind of gone into a little bit already, which is by matchup. Um, so this is, you know, what I mentioned before, where you need to look at, okay, against Affinity, these are the bad cards in my deck. Against Scapeshift, these are the bad cards in my deck. And then think about how many slots that is, and then make sure in your sideboard you have slots that are, you know, you can take in against those, for those matchups. And then make sure that your sideboard then is versatile enough where that also makes it so you don't have dead cards against mm -hmm. other matchups. Um, this is a, a situation, you know, this is generally the way that you also can make sure that you have a list where you know ahead of time what you need to bring side, bring in and out against opponents so that you know, you know, you're not in your match thinking at the table, oh no, what do I bring out? What I didn't really think about this, I'm just going to wing it. You actually have a, a hard tested game plan that you know so you're confident in game twos and threes what you're going to do against your opponent. I think knowing what to take in and out as your sideboarding is really one of the heaviest rewards to just playing a lot with your deck before you actually are in a tournament situation. Uh, it used to be definitely one of my personal biggest leaks. Uh, I would always be looking for like some kind of guide or some help to actually know like what I was supposed to be doing during sideboarding because often I'd feel very lost. I'd be like, I don't right. know what to take out. Like these cards all seem like kind of okay, kind of not okay. And, uh, but thinking very critically about the games is going to be really helpful in helping you identify those cards. Uh, and when you get to the point where you're actually able to, you know, kind of think over how a game plays out without actually playing it, that's when, you know, you're, you're really in a good spot to be sideboarding on the fly because you can really imagine like, oh, well, yeah, he's constantly playing like three cards before I get to turn two. Maybe remand is not where I want to be because I'm already going to be behind. I can't hold open mana. Right. That's It's a really simple lesson, but... You know, once you actually think about the ramifications of what you're trying to react to, you realize, oh, that's why this doesn't work. Well, and sometimes it's hard to think about because you know, normally most people are like, oh, man, that card's good against everything. At, at very worst, I'm going to draw Spells a card. Spells got them. Yeah, but like <laughs> there are decks that it just isn't playable against. And the reason you're playing it main isn't that it's the most powerful spell out there. It's because it's the most versatile. It had the most game mm -hmm. against the most decks where then you can th start thinking, well, I'm playing against Affinity. Well, Remand's terrible and I'm playing, you know, blue, red, green, so I'll bring in Ancient Crutches instead of having Remander. I'm playing blue, white, red, so I'll bring in Wear and Tears. And so you, you know, you have a different game plan, and you just need to know ahead of time that this is what you kind of need to accomplish with it. Um, the last one, which you actually brought this to my attention, and I, I'd actually heard of it in the past, um, but you sent me an article earlier today, but the Elephant strategy of sideboard and deck Yeah, the, the Elephant is how I've been building sideboards ever since I learned that it was a thing, which was ages ago. I can't really remember uh, how or when. Uh, but it was most excellently written up by Zvi Mauschwitz on uh, SCG's site, which you can find that. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and link to that in our yeah. posting. And it's basically the idea is that you construct an idealized deck for every matchup you expect to face. In modern, that's a pretty daunting task, but in, in formats like standard, it's generally actually quite easy. Uh, and you basically just build you know, your 60-card main deck. Like, if I could build any 60 cards, and this is like, what, and this would still be my deck, obviously, you know, you, you want to keep it to the same archetype. <laughs> uh, you know, how would I try and attack this opponent? 
And you can go deep, as deep as you want, really, because that's what the exercise is going to be is, A, when you're done, you know, let's say you've done it for 12 decks, even though for modern that's, you know, relatively small. But <laughs> you've done 12 different main decks. Uh, the cards that show up in all of them, well, those should obviously just be in your main deck, right? right. Like that, you know those cards because you don't take them out ever. They're great everywhere. Fantastic. Uh, then you continue from there, whittling around, looking at what cards appear in the most matchups, uh, what cards you maybe shave one or two of more frequently, because that tells you, hey, maybe I don't have to have four of that card. Maybe I can go to three in the main deck. That gives you more and more room. And the whole concept here is you're trying to go from, you know, maybe you start off with 150 unique card slots being used up. Uh, and as you figure out where you can whittle, where you can shave, which cards overlap, for example, you know, we talked about Stony Silence, Wear, Terror, Shatterstorm, like having all these ways to beat Affinity. Maybe you don't need like Celestial Purge against Splinter Twin and Ancient Grudge against Affinity. Maybe you can, you know, run a Wear, Tear. And that kind of like overlaps against exactly the right. same two things you're trying to do. Uh, and you continue to do that until you have 75 cards. 75 is a perfect number. You just have to figure out then which 15 are in the sideboard <laughs> and, and which are in the main, which hopefully this entire exercise has given you uh, some excellent perspective on. And, and it can, can sound kind of weirdly daunting, but I, I'd encourage you to give it a try. It really isn't. And once you've done it a few times and, and gone through the actual, you know, writing down, pen to paper, legwork of it, you start being able to do it in much your quicker. head just right. much quicker. Like you can think through everything. You're like, oh, well, I would need these cards, these cards, yeah. Well, this is kind of also kind of a perfect moment to do this. There isn't a heavy major modern tournament coming up. There's no modern GPs. There's, you know, modern as a PTQ form, which just got opened up very wide um, mm -hmm. because, you know, Wizards just made an announcement recently that uh, for FNM, stores can do as many formats as they want, depending as long as they can fire off a tournament. Um, and this allows, you know, you to kind of practice your modern decks a little bit more than you normally would be able to possibly. And this also allows you to kind of slowly tune and figure out what your best elephant situation will probably end up being. Yeah, at, at a minimum, uh, it's the kind of exercise that I assure you will make you better at deck building ma in Magic. Like, e even and if... Magic in general. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a solid exercise, and I really wish I could remember the first person who told me about it, because that person deserves a, a hearty thank you. It definitely <laughs> has helped me a lot over the years. Well, mystery person, Glenn just thanked you publicly. So there you, you go. Know That's you the best are. you get. You know, probably not even because yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> it's probably someone I was like literally like in seventh grade or something or someone like that. that. Like, <laughs> someone that just like just told it to you the other day is like, oh, that was me. I told him about it. I'm the best, and it's not you. Nope, yeah, no, yeah, definitely seventh, <laughs> maybe eighth grade. That's uh, probably the latest I think that I can say I heard about this one. So th the last thing we want to break into is some basic sideboarding tips we want to bring up before we move on to the deck tech. Mm -hmm. uh, one specific one is something that I recommend a lot, and we, you know, we just kind of recommend it against it, but if you're a newer to the format or beginning or you haven't a lot of practice or you're just picking up a deck for the first time, bringing with you a sideboard guide. You know, if you're doing all this legwork and figuring out exactly what you need to do, you're completely allowed to have a written down piece of paper in your deck box that says exactly what you need to take out and put in per each matchup. Or at least, at the very least, vaguely, which types of matchups you want to switch them out and in at. Now, it is very important that you only consult this piece of paper between games uh, because you're not allowed to look at it during the match. Right. Uh, that would constitute outside notes, which is a no-no. And indeed, you'll also want to make sure you know you position it so that you're not like op as you open your deck box, like you know, in the middle of a game to get a token or something. You don't want to be able to read that paper. Right. Uh, that's just a general kind of thing. Uh, and one of the things you know, doing the elephant method for figuring out how you should sideboard. One of the perks is at the end of doing the elephant method, you should know exactly which cards are coming in and out where because that was a necessary aspect of the exercise. Right. <laughs> you, you could not have gotten to 75 without figuring it out. So you've you you know you've kind of already figured it out that way and all you really need to do from there is 
jot it down. And again, you know, you don't want to stick to anything hard and fast, but it's good to have some general tips and reminders to help you along. Because you don't want to have to do... You don't want to have done all of that work and then wind up at the table and have forgotten which card Ooh, you're supposed right. to take out. <laughs> uh, and that's really the goal there. So that kind of covers, you know, sideboarding for now. Uh, we're actually now getting into our deck tech, which is Merfolk. Um, Merfolk is a deck that is a tribal deck. It's the first tribal deck we're kind of covering. And what that means, it's a deck where the creature type of most, if not all of the cards in the deck are of the same creature type. Um, that means that, you know, a lot of the time, this also means that you're playing with Lord cards, and these are cards that give all other creatures of the certain types plus one, plus one, or special abilities, or trigger off effects based off of those specific creature types. Yeah, the real defining characteristic is not only that, you know, they share the creature type, but that the deck hinges upon making the creature type matter. Uh, you, Alex mentioned the Lords. The Lords allow you to turn otherwise pretty innocuous little merfolks into actual beatdown machines. Uh, and then you have cards like Silvergill Adept, which, you know, as a function of having a critical mass of Merfolk, you get to play a 2-1 for 2 that cantrips, which is very, very good as right. far as magic cards go. Especially when that 2-1 then gets pumped by all those lords into yeah. a 4x or bigger. Uh, another kind of card that pays off tribal strategies is the sometimes played uh, Cavern of Souls, which, you know, by allowing you to name a creature type can turn your creatures uncounterable. And these are the kind of payoffs you get. Uh, there are not necessarily a ton of cards in the game of Magic Gathering that pay you off for committing so heavily to a creature type, but the ones that exist are, are generally both popular and occasionally very powerful. Right. I, I mean, generally there are three big all-stars in my mind of the three big tribal decks in Magic's history. Sure. And that's Merfolk, Elf, and Goblin decks. And... You know, there is a goblin deck in, in Modern, but it's not as strong as you. You know, it, it's much weaker than its legacy cousin. Uh, Sam is Elf decks because of the specific banned cards that are on the ban list that kind of hate it out because otherwise it would be too strong. And so what's kind of left is the Merfolk deck. Um, Merfolk classically is a deck that's best in formats where there's a lot of blue. Uh, one of the defining features of Merfolk is that they have Island Walk. Uh, two of the major lords in the deck, um, the classic one from Alpha, Lord of Atlantis, and its best buddy, who is basically a straight-up reprint, which is Master of the Pearl Trident, mm -hmm. both give Merfolk uh, Island Walk. So against island opponents, opponents with island uh, islands, your entire squad is unblockable. Yeah. In Legacy, where blue is just the best card and the best color in the room by a pretty wide margin, this becomes a very, very efficient way to try to you know just get in the red zone very quickly. Yeah. One of the things about blue decks in, in Legacy, for example, is if I'm one of the things about Merfolk and Legacy is often that, you know, if they're not playing blue, they probably don't have creatures in a lot of situations. <laughs> right. Or they certainly don't have creatures that are going to be tangoing with, you know, two mana four fours, which is what you're most frequently churning out. Right. So. And that form a, common, uh, a combo of the fact that, you know, getting in there with these creatures that they can't block on top of the fact that you have Cavernous Souls, which makes it their counter spells can't stop them, means that, that a lot of time they just don't have answers to deal with you. Um, in Modern... It's a little bit less of a unfair situation because the fact that blue is not, or at least classically in modern, hasn't been as popular as it has always been. Now that very well could be changing with the fact that Treasure Cruises and Dig Through Time are now the yeah, most there's some potential. ubiquitous cards that are coming out of cons, making blue decks much more powerful for the first time and giving blue decks a card draw engine that it really hasn't had. So it might be time for Merfolk to kind of come out of the closet and start beating face in the old fishy fashion way. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility uh, one of the ways that Merfolk is also able to hedge, you know, there are a ton of green decks in Modern. That's Green is probably the most popular color given, you know, Birthing Pod and Jun decks uh, between the two yeah. of them. Yeah, between yeah. Birthing Pod and Tarmogoyf, that's a significant amount of the field. Yeah. So you do actually have to be able to attack against these decks. Uh, it's not an option to just not. And there are actually decks that are kind of difficult to attack into. Kitchen Finks and Voice of Resurgence are great blockers. Tarmogoyf, 
also a very good blocker. Right. Uh, and so one of the things that the deck has access to is Spreading Season Enchantment that allows you to turn any land into an island and it cantrips. So aside from the two mana, it's essentially a free roll, except that it's not quite just a free roll because it also makes all your guys unblockable. Right. And and it also allows you to sometimes just hate out on man lands or, mm -hmm. or lands that are a problem because it turns them straight into islands, kind of like Blood Moon. And similar to Blood Moon, sometimes you can just straight up color screw an opponent. If they're oh, not yeah. playing blue and they only have one red source and you get rid of that red source, then their green and black sources are just not going to be the cards that maybe they need to kind of defeat you. Yeah, a reasonably common line to take against a, a deck like Birthing Pod is to use Vapor Snag, uh, Bounce, or Dismember, Neg5, Neg5, to kill their Mana Dork and then turn two Spreading Seas them uh, when you're on the play because there's a, a reasonable chance that they might not actually have the second land. Birthing right. Pod keeps... Land light hands really frequently, uh, and even if they do, you're still gaining a ton of time, ton of tempo. Uh, it's it's not unreasonable. Right, and, and all you did was cantrip. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, th these are some of the ways that kind of it gets in there. You know, the other side is that eventually Merfolk's creatures will get bigger than everyone else. They are playing a total, I think, of twelve, if not more, lords. Uh, it varies. Most play, uh, I think right now, 10 lords is, is about okay. the, the general, but they can play as many as technically 16. Right. Uh, there's also, in addition to the Lord of Atlantis and uh, the Master of the Pearl Trident we mentioned, there's also Mera Regiri, uh, which is two and a blue for a 2-2. Two, two. Uh, just gives the plus one, plus one. Doesn't give Island Walk, but he does give you the ability to tap or untap permanence whenever you cast Merfolk spells, which well, can definitely kind of matter. combo off and change. Like, there, there are turns where you can play out your entire hand because Mera Regiri is untapping mana, untapping... Mm -hmm. uh, um, the next card we're going to get to, or a card we're going to eventually get to, Aether Vial, yeah. allowing you to kind of just chain through your whole deck, playing just card after card after card. He's also very, very good in those green matchups when you don't have a Spreading Seas because he can let you tap down some blockers and get your creatures in for damage. Uh, it doesn't come up all that often, but it definitely does, and there's I think that's one of the biggest reasons he gets a, a few slots usually. Uh, and outside of that, there's also Korahelm Commander, which is a creature I don't personally like very much, but I know some people swear by him. Uh, he's a blue-blue 2-2, two, two, and he levels up into a 3-3 three, three flyer, and then if you can level him all the way up, you're living the dream, and you get a... Uh, a 4-4 four, four flying yeah. other merfolk creatures you control get plus one, plus one for two. Yep. Plus the mana investment of leveling up. So he can be a lord, but realistically, if you were able to get that guy to 4-4, four, four, then the 4-4 four, four flyer is probably capable of beating them to death, because clearly they have right. nothing that can stop anything Generally, <laughs> Generally, the things I notice people playing this is as a one-of, as a mana sink, and something that eventually just can kind of get big and be a fighter on its own that's just... You know, sometimes you need that one card to survive, and at first they're maybe not going to focus on him because you have much more dangerous things like your lords and your, you know, your more powerful spells that you have in your deck. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally just not a huge fan because he's one of the few cards that basically doesn't help anybody else out, you know? Like, if my Lord of Atlantis only lives a turn, at least I got in an extra point of damage or something like that because of him. Or if my Curse Catcher doesn't really do all that much, at least it slowed down a couple of their spells being cast. But right. the you know, the Coral Home Commander, he's just basically like, hey, you guys do your thing, I'm going to do my thing. Yeah, for a deck <laughs> Maybe it works out. So much about synergy. Yeah. It's not, a, it, it's just vaguely synergistic. Yeah. A um, creature that frequently sees honorary Merfolk status in, in the deck is Kira, Great Glass Spinner. Uh, has seen play in Legacy uh, and still sees play in Modern. So one blue blue for a 2 2 spirit, not very Merfolky. Uh, but it has flying, which is a unique ability in the deck. Right. <laughs> uh, and it also has access to its uh, its ability, which is whenever a creature becomes the target of a spell or ability for the first time each turn, you counter it. So all of your creatures get this nice little bubble shield, which is great. Pseudo-double hexproof-esque yeah. kind of situation. It's, it's a first-time go, and, and it's great because one of the ways that people traditionally try and interact with a deck like Merfolk is to just run you out of guys. Right. If they can just kill a couple lords, then you're left with you know your Silver Girl Adams and your Curse Catchers, not the most impressive of beatdown teams. 
if you can get a cure down, it becomes much more difficult to remove those lords. Um, and also that we kind of haven't brought up, then one of the most important parts of the deck, I would say, is Aether Vial. Oh, yeah. Um, Aether Vial is a one-mana artifact that at the beginning of your upkeep, you may put a charge counter on it, and you can tap it at any time, and you can put a creature in from your hand equal to, uh, with the converted man cost equal to how many counters are on Aether Vial. Um, what's really important about this is that, A, it saves you a lot of mana, but B, it's uncounterable and flash and instant speed. So, you know, this becomes one of the more trickier ways this card kind of works, and it also allows you to, you know, sometimes, you know, A, it lets you empty your hand much quicker, B, it lets you get things in so counter spells aren't very versatile, which is more important in formats like Legacy, but it's still relevant in Modern. And C, though, it lets you kind of surprise lore people, is my favorite way I think I've seen it used, where, you know, oh, I can attack into this guy, he just has an Aether Vial untapped and his creatures are all kind of small, or they're just curse catchers, they're one ones. And then you flash into Lord Atlantis, and now, oh wait, his entire board mm -hmm. just brick walls me. And I just lost all my creatures, and now he swings in for a stupid amount of damage on his next turn because he can play two Lords of Atlantis after that because he has enough Lords and Aether Vial plus the mana, and I lose. Yeah, Aether Vial is one of the more innocuous, uh, gigantic mistakes of R&D, I would say. Like, it, it's kind of, reading the card for the first time, you don't realize just how absurd it actually is, but Aether Vial does something that very few cards do, and most of the cards that do it have been restricted to banned in various formats, <laughs> right. which is it changes how mana works. Uh, you know, your creatures just don't cost mana anymore. <laughs> uh, Aether Vial is capable of generating a, a massive mana advantage over the course of several turns, and it's one of the reasons that the deck can afford to run a lot of utility lands, like Mutavolts and Tectonic Edges are very frequently played mm -hmm. because you can use your lands for this purpose instead of for casting creatures because you can lean on Aether Vial. Uh, I think, I forget exactly who, who said it, but I would definitely agree with them, that Aether Vial is the most criminally under, underplayed card in Modern. Uh, that I could get behind that. It's definitely inc very, very powerful. I mean, right, right. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if, when they were building the first modern ban list, they thought about banning Aether Vial. I don't think that they should have, but it's the kind of card where you're like, all right, let's make sure before we let this one into right. the wild that it's okay. And and you know, it's kind of proven that they were smart. And the reason mm -hmm. that I think it isn't seeing as much play is that modern is much more of a format that goes the breadth of converted mana costs. It's not all about, you know, one two, one and mm -hmm. two cost th creatures with the maximum of three. It's one, two, three, four, five drop creatures. So Aether Vial isn't as much of a powerhouse as it normally is in Legacy, Definitely where true. in Legacy, everything is a two drop or you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And in Legacy, also, the uncounterability comes up much more often, whereas in Modern, there are so right. many green decks that, you know, they're just like, oh, you're building boards of Tarmogoyf, so I just cast Tarmogoyf. That's right. what I do. Well, not to mention, so. in in Modern, it just the counterspells aren't as powerful, or they cost four mana, and at that point, you're already on the board with enough creatures yeah. to kind of get in there. And there aren't as many powerful things to do with the lands, either, you know? There, there aren't as many solid man lands. Uh, Mutavolt sees play in both, but... Merfolk used to really be all in on Wastelands and Legacy, and that's not a thing that you can do in <laughs> modern, thankfully. Right, right. <laughs> uh, outside of that, I think Merfolk has really experienced a little bit of a renaissance in modern uh, as a result of Theros yep. uh, with the printing of Master of Waves. We saw Master of Waves do some uh, pretty big work in Standard for the last year. I have a feeling we'll be seeing him... Uh, you know, retiring to Boca for the next year. Well, but... <laughs> referring to Boca known as Merfolk and Modern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, he, but he's very, very powerful in this deck, even without other Merfolk in play, uh, because, you know, just having additional threats in Modern is huge. And right. as a four-mana card, he can't be killed by Abrupt Decay. Or as a creature bolt. with yeah. Red, he can't be killed by Lightning Bolt. Uh, and as a guy who brings friends, he's pretty resilient to other forms of beatdown. So he's pretty big game. Uh, and also keep in mind those Spreading Seas... 
those will help you out with his uh, devotion trigger as well. It's right. not uncommon to have a spreading Caesar two just laying around on an opponent's land. You peel a master, all of a sudden you have eight power in play. Well, and, and then something that you know many people that were playing with the Boo Devotion deck were aware of. You know, you played pretty mediocre um, creatures, but because they had two pips, two of the you know mm-hmm. double you know devotion counts in their mana cost, you played them because with Master Waves or Thassa it just became obnoxiously powerful. Now, in Merfolk, most of those lords we mentioned and most of those creatures we mentioned have their entire converted mana cost as islands, is, is the blue devotion symbols that you need. So, you know, yes, without Merfolk, it's strong, but when you have, you know, any of your Merfolk in play, it starts to get out of hand and you start getting your giant elemental army. One of the reasons I really like Master of Waves in the deck is also that it gives you a very different kind of weapon for most of your guys. You know, we talked about how the deck is really synergy laden and you're trying to build a critical mass many times. You need like, you know, two or three creatures in play. You don't need that with a Master of Waves. But unlike Coral Home Commander, he's not so vulnerable. A Coral Home Commander can be destroyed by anything that destroys all of your other lords, basically. Uh, whereas a Master of Waves, that's just not true. And not only that, he brings along a friend. Right. And the other side of it is with that Coral Home Commander, it's a much slower card that doesn't do that much. When you bring Master Waves in, you can win on the upswing. If they're yeah. not ready for the army of, you know, elemental tokens, you're really just ahead of the game, and there's not a lot opponents can do in the format. As and we said earlier, you know, cards like... Um, sorry, cards like Pyromancer see play because tokens kind of get around a lot of the things in the format, and this is another way to make a large army of them. Um... You know, the other side of that is really Mono Blue Devotion after Theros didn't get that many tools for the rest of the year. No. It really was just on the back of the fact that Master Waves plus Thassa plus good devotion creatures were strong enough to make it the third tier of the format while Mono Black got better cards. Blue White got better cards. Mono Blue is just stronger than them to start with and just never got weaker. Yeah, I, I think Master of Waves is a pretty underplayed creature in modern in general. I think that there could be decks that play it uh, more commonly as we move forward in the format. One of the issues is that most blue decks aren't really permanent-based, so Master of Waves really is just himself and a friend in a lot of spots for those kind of decks. But at the same time, he's just... He's so hard to kill. Uh, some decks can just straight-up die to him flat out. For example, a Scape Shift deck. Like, game one, if you just resolve a Master of Waves against them, like, that that's it. Like, they have to Scape Shift right. you or they're going to die. They don't have a way to kill that guy. And they don't have uh, any blocking it either. Yeah, so. <laughs> they've got no, it's just going to go, uh, really, in in most situations. Especially, you know, as soon as you factor in one Island Walking Lord, then they're obviously just, you know, dead to rights oh, at that yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, and multiple copies of Master of Waves are also very, very powerful, which is another way it contrasts with Coral Home Commander. The second Coral Home Commander is atrocious. Second Master of Waves is the lottery. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, I, I win. <laughs> Oh, that's what this card says. Okay, good game. Yeah, one of the better tricks you can keep in mind while playing the deck is if you can get an Aether Bottle to four counters and get to four mana, uh, you can cast a Master of Waves, and even if they're trying to Path to Exile your guy in response to the trigger, you can simply Vile in the second, second Master right. of Waves, and you'll not only get both triggers, but you'll get to keep all of the guys created. So right. it's a handy trick to keep in mind. Well, and, and you know, in that situation, you know you can tick it up at your upkeep, like, oh, this is my plan. I'm going to yeah. play both these Master Waves. And being on three isn't ridiculous because Mirror Rejoy, as we mentioned, is a card that you often want to be able to possibly flash in. Another card somewhere on the Master Waves plan and the Coralheim Commander plans, which is a an additional threat that kind of is doing its own thing, but maybe kind of plays with the game plan already, is Cozy's Trickster. Uh, Cozy's Trickster is a one-drop Merfolk 1-1, one, one, and whenever your opponent shuffles their deck, it gets plus one, plus one counters. 
the reason this is in modern specifically kind of an efficient card is because people are fetching all the time. Um, it kind of comes down early. It kind of goes with your game plan because it's going to get punched by your lords anyway, so it's not the worst card to be playing. And beyond that, it can sometimes just get obnoxiously big and, or shut your opponent's mana down if they're really worried about taking damage because it just kind of efficiently works that way. The other side is that you previously mentioned that because of Aether Vial, these decks can play a lot of um, utility lands. And Ghost Quarter is a way to either completely strip mine an opponent or force them to search their deck. And it kind of goes with the game plan your deck's already kind of going with, which is shutting, you know, efficiently cutting down what their man lands are doing, shutting down what they're doing and getting in there. Um, yeah. I don't personally play Cozy Strixer in my list, but I definitely see the merit to it. Uh, the Merfolk deck really wants a one-drop. Like, hands with one-drops are much better than hands without. Uh, and so leading on a Curse Catcher or an Aether Vial or a Cozy Strixer really lets you keep tempo in your favor and allows you to create board states where the opponent is responding to you instead of you responding to them, which is what you want because you're not a very responsive deck. You're super you're super proactive. You're just trying to attack, like, basically every turn of the game and having a one-drop in play to get turned into a 2-2 two -two on turn 2, to get turned into a 3-3 three -three on turn 3, that's where you want to be. Uh, it's very similar to how a deck might curve out with, you know, like one drop into Noble Hierarch into whatever. You know, you're, you're right. kind of doing the same exact game plan. And, you know, missing the one drop is going to be a, a hurt sometimes. Well, and, and if you look at, you know, the difference between Crawlheim Commander and this again is that Crawlheim Commander kind of gets in the way. It's, you know, when you play that is when you can be playing much more powerful spells. You, from everything from Spreading Sea to your Lords, mm -hmm. where, cause, like, turn one, you're not doing anything. Or if later game... You know, it's only one mana, so it's not really getting in the way of doing things. While, you know, and if they kill it, you wasted one mana. You really didn't get in a card. Yeah. You know, the biggest waste is more the card. And at that point, you're like, well, you fired a lightning bolt off my creature. I lost one mana and a card, and I still have my six lords. Good job. We, I win. Um, it's so an important it's, distinction because the only way that they're getting value on your Cozy Strixer is if they're gut-shotting it. Right. Whereas a Coral Helm Commander, lightning bolt is, you know, king of the format. It's pretty common to see that guy taking a lightning bolt. It's not unusual at all. And not only that, Coral Helm Commander really requires a significant mana investment before he even is a threat. You know, you have to put in two to cast him, and then you have to put in two more just to get him up to that 3-3 three, three flyer status, at which point, you know, now you're like, okay, I've kind of got a card now. But for four mana, I could have cast a Master of Waves, and if that guy resolves, it's like way higher right. impact in a lot of situations. <laughs> and the Coral Helm Commander, there are definitely perks, obviously, you know, a, he gives you a flyer. That's unique. Uh, B, you get to pay the mana over multiple turns, so he's a sink in that way, which is handy. Uh, C, he does boost Merfolk eventually, theoretically. Right. Uh, but really, I, I think he's just a little too costly for what he provides. I, I think the main advantage that you maybe get from Coral Eye Commander versus something like maybe a Cozy Stricter is if I have somehow, my opponent has grinded me out, but in that action, they have also grinded themselves out, so we were both in top-decking mode. Mm -hmm. Coralheim Commander is a better card than Cozy Strixer the top oh, deck. Oh, for sure. Um, but the strength of your deck is not necessarily just the single cards you're going to be drawing. You're yeah. not playing a deck like Morphoke for those situations. You're playing a deck like Morphoke to kind of get in there and beat them with the efficiency of your card and the fact that every single card in your deck kind of works together. Yeah, Merfolk is very frequently uh, the kind of deck I've, I've commonly called a top 10 and as like a... Uh, a turn of phrase, which is, you know, like, the top ten cards are pretty much what you're playing with. Like, that's right. going to determine how this goes. Uh, and one of the perks of having Merfolk is, you know, it's a deck with very redundant strategy. A lot of the cards do very similar things. And your top tens are frequently pretty good, and they frequently do very similar things, which is exactly what you want to be doing. Uh, by the same token, you know, that does mean in the late game you can get in awkward situations. Uh, a lot of cards in the deck suffer from that, obviously. Late game Aether Vial, not something you want to draw. Right. Uh, Silver Girl Adept with no other cards in hand. Less than ideal. Curse Catcher in the late game, 
Also not great. Right. Yeah, there, there are a lot of situations where these creatures that are great on turns one, two, and three, once you get into, you know, turn six and seven, you're like, ah, I could really be, you know, using some Tarmogoyfs in this spot, <laughs> <laughs> which is an upside that other decks have that you don't. And then one card we actually didn't mention, um, I realized, and that kind of is the thing that mitigates the situation, and it kind of goes along with the Ghost Quarters, Tectonic Edges, Cavern Souls, is the big manland himself, Mutavault. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mutavault... You know, for those who don't know, is a man land. It's a it's a colorless tapping land that becomes a creature, a two two that has all creature types. All of those creature types also includes merfolk. So the game plan it goes along normally is, oh, this is another thing that's getting pumped by my many lords. It has efficiency with all the other cards I'm playing that kind of do well with merfolk. But in those situations, like if you just got board wiped or they grinded you out, you still have your man land who can get in there and start attacking for two every turn, and lets you kind of deal with the fact that some of your draws are maybe not as efficient in the late game. Yeah, Mutavolt is definitely one of the best cards in the deck. Uh, and one of the most skill-testing aspects of the deck is actually making sure when you're playing a Mutavolt is the correct turn to be playing it. Uh, I've come up in situations where, you know, a turn one Mutavolt's really an important thing to be doing versus, you know, sometimes it's a turn three Mutavolt, sometimes right. it's a turn two. Like, there, you have to be pretty careful because you don't want to miss out on two points of damage with the deck. Right. And it's something that kind of similarly plays out to Mono Blue Devotion, where, yeah. you know, devote like because a lot of the cards in the deck are too blue, uh, instead of a, a colorless and a blue, playing Mutavault on turn one is probably not as efficient as it normally would be because you want to be able to play your Lord on turn two. But sometimes you also just need to start beating down as soon as possible, and so Mutavault coming down that early is very, very helpful. Um, the difference maker in this deck is definitely Aether Vial in that situation because a turn one Mutavault, you couldn't cast anything really in a mono blue devotion, but in this deck, you can cast an Aether Vial, and then when you start going, you know, turn one Vial, turn two, attack for two, Vial and a Curse Catcher. Turn, th turn three, attack with a Curse Catcher and the Mutabot, Vile and a Lord. Now you're like really getting in damage really fast, uh, developing a board, and you're also a little resilient to those Wrath effects because you have the Mutabot already in play. That's a different. That's a very different game from if you had just led, you know, Island, Island, Island. Like Right. And, you know, the last... And something to keep in mind when playing with Mutabot, like a cool little interaction that does always this, Master of Waves also pumps it. So, you know, you know, normally Master Wave just pumps elemental spells, but with Mutavault in play, it gets the bonus along with all the other Merfolk things because it is all creature types, which is really relevant specifically yeah. in these matters. That's very commonly missed by opponents. You can often get a, a favorable block out of that, right. so keep that in mind. Uh, one of the things opponents also miss is the Spreading Seas boosting devotion. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> make sure you don't forget that either. Um, so now that we kind of broke down what the deck is trying to do, what cards are in it, and kind of its history, I, let's bring it through the Gauntlet. Sure. Um, first on the gauntlet list, let's bring in Pod. Yeah, I have found Pod to be a very favorable matchup for Merfolk, uh, to the point that one of the local Pod players at a store I play at laments whenever, you know, I happen to turn up for a tournament because getting paired against me is just really not what he wants. Right. Uh, really, it's kind of difficult to explain because you, on, on one hand, you know, you think, oh, I get it, it's two creature decks fight now, like maybe Pod should just have the huge edge here and it's... It's peculiarly not the case. Uh, they can't really block, uh, assuming you can deploy a spreading seas, and even if you can't, in a lot of situations, it's very difficult for them to block profitably. Uh, and then outside of that, you know, I, I usually focus heavily on killing their mana dork to kind of slow them down. And with Merfolk packing Vapor Snag and its members, you actually have a lot of turn one interaction for a mana dork, more than most decks commonly do. Uh, and you get to you know, use Aether Vial to get ahead of them on the board faster, which when you're killing their mana dork and you have Aether Vial or something like that, 
you're getting really just a lot more of a board presence than they can. And Pod's used to being the one who leads there. They're used to having the bigger board. So they're not prepared to defend against uh, a faster, more aggressive board state because they're usually the ones creating that pressure. They they don't need to defend in most matchups. Uh, I can imagine that, you know, in Pod, Pod is a little bit of a mid-range deck and a little bit of an aggressive deck, but it, it's kind of a mediocre aggressive deck. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's a bad aggressive deck, but that... You know, it's not built to be efficiently aggressive. It's no. built to do all of the dirtily things that it does that are very powerful. But when it's matched up against an aggressive deck that's built to be an aggressive deck and is also an aggressive deck that kind of goes around its main way of fighting other aggressive decks, it, it I can imagine it being very difficult for it to handle. Because when, you know, a brick wall of 4-4 four is coming at you for Pod doesn't sound like a very no. favorable way of blocking or dealing with it, especially if you can't block them because of spreading seas. You know, it, against Zoo decks... Kitchen Finks normally gets you there, but Kitchen Finks isn't very good against Merfolk. Not at all. Uh, and in the most common matchups, even if Pod's not necessarily being a beatdown deck, it's still used to being the deck with initiative, because it has all of those one-drop mana dorks to get it ahead on mana, and it's used to being the person who's basically like, all right, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, and the other guy's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, like, I, I right. handle this, handle this, handle this. But Merfolk is the exact opposite of that. It's like, no, I'm also coming, right. I am here. <laughs> I'm coming at you. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, and... Because they both also do have a very similar card in the fact that Aether Vial and Breathing Pod do very similar things, which lets you kind of cheat mana and get value out of the, you know, playing extra creatures as yeah, play. Yeah, they're obviously Aether Vial is way more aggressive oh, and right. is playing into that. So Pod is really trying to be the control deck against you. Uh, and there are some good tricks to keep in mind. Uh, you definitely want to try and just, you know, get a Spreading Seas down and all of your guys are unblockable. The Pod deck is really low on removal, especially in game one. So your lords are frequently going to live and just allow you to race them down. Uh, it's not that difficult. You just need to avoid allowing them to have some giant thing or get in a ton of damage on you early. Right. Uh, which, fortunately, you have you know generally just the right amount of interaction to avoid that happening. Uh, another handy trick is that Dismember actually can let you dodge Murderous Redcap killing your creatures. Uh, unlike a card like Lightning Bolt, which if you Lightning Bolt a Murderous Redcap, you're still getting the two damage trigger. Uh, because Dismember adjusts his power and toughness, you actually get a negative three, negative three <laughs> creature coming into play and dealing its power to a creature, which is not going to deal anything. That's a zero. Uh, so that's one of the ways that they are frequently used to taking back tempo against decks like Merfolk or decks that rely on a bunch of creatures, and Redcap just doesn't work that well when you have access to Dismember. So that's a good trick to keep in mind. Uh, outside of that, Master of Waves is a real haymaker against them. It throws up a ton of blockers. They have no way to get through them at all. It can't be Redcapped, so they're all there to stay. Uh, if you can just get a Master of Waves into play for Pod and trigger it for anywhere from like two to six, which is a totally realistic number in the matchup, uh, elementals, it's just super difficult for them to win because the only way they can win is by racing you. But if you have all these blockers, you're just going to chump up and then attack them back for lethal. And you're the one with the spreading seas somewhere in your deck that will eventually kill them. Right. I, I feel like for pod, a plan that you really want to be on if you're going to be playing Merfolk is just trying to infinite them, trying to get the combo with pod to get either infinite life, infinite or infinite damage. Um, and those situations are probably the one where Merfolk can't very do do very much against Infinite Life, I imagine. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really have... It's not like Affinity where you have Infect Lands that are available to you, so it really is important to try and beat them down as fast as possible because if you let them go long enough, eventually they are able to do those things, and that's really what their game plan A is going to be against you. Yeah, the, the combo is definitely threatening. One of the perks you have is that you know comboing very quickly usually costs a fair amount of life because Birthing Pod is an expensive card to activate right. uh, unless you're using the fresh Phyrexian mana parts of it. And fortunately, the Merfolk deck can punish the opponent for using Phyrexian mana a lot. Uh, so usually, Birthing Pod gets activated, you know, two, maybe three times. I, I don't really think 
I don't, I'm trying to think if I've ever won a game where Birthing Pot activated three times. I don't think so, but I've won Manny where it got activated twice, and that's just, you know, it wasn't enough. They weren't able to catch up in time. Right. It's uh, possible at that point that they lost a total of, like, six life just off yeah. of that, not including the lands that they had to play to play their spells. Right. So those are the situations where you start to kind of become in favor for winning in that life race. Yeah, and like I said, I think your key cards are really going to be um, like Dismember, Spreading Seas, and Master of Waves. So everything else kind of overlaps, but those cards really kind of change how the pod deck races you, and that's what they're on in game one. Uh, in games two and three, they have access to uh, a lot more removal, but I, I think you're just still advantage. You know, you cut some of the cards that aren't very good. The, cure, the cures are pretty mediocre. If you're running encounters, those are pretty mediocre. Uh, but outside of that, you know, you're you're just on the same plan, really. Right. Um, next... Black Green X decks, the mid-range decks of the format. Now, to preface, I actually think these decks have gotten much worse recently, um, at least the uh, white and red ones, because of the fact that, you know, these are decks that have been very good right recently due to the fact that there's no other decks that can out, you know, out-card them, out-grind them. And I think Treasure Cruise as a card in the format, um, which is a card actually we didn't talk about, but could be seen play even in Merfolk. It's a blue card. They're blue. No. <laughs> um, I'm shaking my head solemnly. No, not um, You know, this makes these decks maybe something we have to worry about less, but I do want to bring them up for Merfolk because they yeah. are something that y you at least need to be aware of and how well, to fight them. These decks definitely aren't going anywhere, but I do agree with you that Treasure Cruise is going to change a lot of things. Like, I'm probably selling my Cabal Therapies because the dream is dead in Legacy. You know, like, I'm just not going to get to cast this card for any in any good deck ever again now that Treasure Cruise is legal. Uh, in Modern, it's, you know, possible Treasure Cruise actually gets axed, but for now, we definitely have to deal with it. And for now, it is the kind of card that makes Thoughtseize decks much, much worse because the entire premise is, you know, you take away a couple relevant cards, you stick one of your big threats, uh, or you grind someone out with Liliana's, and then, you know, you're golden. Except, you know, when people can just Ancestral Recall their way back into the game, things are trickier. Right. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, Merfolk is not a deck that is, you know, going to have that treasure cruise, so Thoughtseize decks still have the same game plan against Merfolk. Unfortunately for them, their game plan is relatively limited because they're all in on just trying to trade, 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 trade. Right. Merfolk as a deck generally runs 20 lands um, for Aether Vial, and then the rest are all just threats and removal. So you actually have uh, a higher spell density than the Jun deck by a fair bit, and with Silver Galadapt, you're also cantripping. With Mutavault, you have a more efficient man land than theirs, which is Raging Ravine. Uh, so you can actually... Ghost Corners of Tectonic Edges, you can handle their man lands. Yeah. You can so... also color screw them pretty... Like, something that Merfolk, it's similar to its legacy counterpart, it is part of its game plan with the Ghost Quarters or Tectonic Edges, with the Spreading Seas, is just shutting down people's mana. And Jund is very weak to this. They're our three-color deck. And whenever you're playing three colors, that's when you are weakest to these situations. Yeah, in, in reality... It usually is a very grindy game. Uh, you don't usually get to rush them out because they have so much removal. Uh, and generally, I don't, I don't try and color screw them out. I mostly try and target man lands with my Cs and my tech edges. Uh, if I happen to, you know, think I might be able to get them, maybe I go for it. But usually, like, if I have a spreading Cs and nothing really else to do, and they don't have a man land, I'm still frequently going to just wait because killing the man land is going to matter more often than maybe the card I draw because, you know, my cards are all the same. They're all just a bunch of lords and stuff. So it's not a huge deal. Your main weapon against them is really your deck construction, which is, you know, you're just going to try and draw more creatures than they have answers. Uh, Master of Waves is very powerful against them. We've discussed that it doesn't die to Lightning Bolt and Abrupt Decay. It also doesn't die to Liliana of the Veil. Those are really their primary ways of right. killing guys uh, that we just summed up. So if you can get multiple copies of Master of Waves, you can usually run away with the game. Uh, one of the downsides is as a 20-land deck, 
uh, with four aether vial that they can abrupt decay, they can actually sometimes control whether or not you have access to master of waves. For example, you know, they thought sees you, they see you kept two lands, like double master of waves. Well, you can have those master of waves. They're just going to hope that you don't find the lands. Right. Uh, on the flip side, you know, if they notice you have three lands and those master of waves are like, all right, well, I'll take one of those guys, get, <laughs> get rid of them. So they get a lot more control over uh, that than you do, which is a little unusual. So you have to watch out for that. And in general, I think it's just a really close matchup. I, I don't think anyone is ahead by a lot. Uh, I think the Jun deck probably stands to gain more in general. Uh, like if I decided I'm playing Jun and I'm like, yeah, I really want to beat Merfolk, I can probably just make that happen. If I'm Merfolk deciding I really want to beat Jun, there's not a lot I can do. I just have to keep chugging along. Uh, personally, I run four Dismember in the main deck. That's a big weapon in that matchup and really important. And if Jund is a matchup that you want to make sure you can kill with Merfolk, I'd advise you to do the same. As long as you can open up on being able to kill uh, an early Tarmogoyf or Dark Confidant or even Scavenging you sometimes, uh, that'll frequently be enough to, you know, buy you the time, maybe get in. Uh, you really want to draw just Silver Galatops and Master of Waves. That's like the win condition. Next, uh, I wanted to go over, you know, the other major aggro deck in the format or one of the other major aggro decks, which is Affinity. It's not a good matchup. Right. Uh, there's <laughs> basically... We talked about the pod deck, the pod deck being used to creating initiative, and that's why one of the reasons you're good against them is because you create the initiative and there's not really an axis on which they can fight back. Uh, the same thing is happening in the affinity matchup, except that instead of you know getting a mana advantage, they're getting a creature, life total, evasive, beatdown advantage. Right. They're, they're, Huge. You know, your exact game plan against pod is their exact game plan against you, yeah. and it's, it is better against you than you are against it. For sure. Right. Uh, it's... They can usually kill you before you can kill anyone, generally speaking. Their clock is just faster, uh, which, you know, is step one of having a good matchup anywhere. Like, I just right. kill you faster than you kill me. Uh, we, there are very few ways to interact at all. Uh, I mentioned I run Fortis Member. Obviously, that can be a little tricky against a deck that has such aggressive starts, uh, right. especially when backed by cranial plating. It can frequently only take two cranial plating hits to kill someone. Uh, so you want to really try and save those dismembers for a creature equipped with cranial plating because otherwise you're in bad shape. Right. Uh, but by the same token, you know, if they're opening on signal pest multiple creatures, maybe you have to dismember that signal pest because otherwise you're just going to die to that. So it, you have to really figure out exactly what's important in every game. If you make a mistake, you're probably going to lose. Uh, and generally speaking, you're just still going to lose uh, anyway. It's a horrible matchup. Martin Juzo popularized the deck on channel Fireball, and he's using a list developed by uh, another Czech player whose name escapes me right now. I think it's Peter Schulke or something along those lines. Uh, but they just abandon the affinity matchup. They're just like, we're just going to not play against that that many times. That's our plan. Uh, the only other plan you have is get really lucky, just nut draw them and have them mulligan and stumble a little. Uh, when it comes to sideboard, though, you do have options, maybe like Hercules yeah. Recall or... I, I do sideboard. Uh, they don't. The reason I sideboard is because in the SoCal metagame, I can't really walk into a tournament expecting to not play against Affinity. It's right, too common right. a deck around here. Uh, so I sideboard very similarly to, to theirs, except that I do have the four Hercules Recall, which I've trimmed some cards to make room for and adjusted some of the main deck numbers. And, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's still it's not enough. It's still a bad matchup, even with four Hercules Recall. Uh, if you had four Hercules Recall in the main, it would probably be, like, even. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> it's just not a good matchup. There's no way to slice it. Uh, if you draw a Hercules Recall, you can probably win the game. Not always, but you can probably do it. It, it, it makes it much more of a race, I feel like. Mm -hmm. I would assume where, you know, normally it's just you're going to lose to what they're doing, where Hercules Recall at least gives you that glimmer of a chance to try and kind of get in there with your yeah. creatures because you restart their board at a certain point. But I can also, I mean, the problem we mentioned this when we did Affinity, Hercules Recall is actually not that strong specifically against it because 
Affinity is all about playing its entire hand on turn two and one, so it doesn't really stop them as long as it normally yeah. would imagine. You'd imagine they bounce all creatures that your opponent controls would normally stop it. Yeah, a smart player will also know how to play around Hercules Recall because there are not a lot of cards you can threaten from as a Merfolk player. Right. Like they're just going to know, oh, it, it's going to be that. So. Uh, you you don't just get to free win people when you draw the Hercules Recall. I would say you're probably a favorite in the games in which you draw Hercules Recall, uh, but not you know like an un- they're never going to win favorite. You're just like more likely to win right, than you're, they you're are. You're at fifty five percent versus yeah. So 30. <laughs> in the matchup post board, generally if I have a hand that doesn't have a Hercules Recall, I just like I almost always snap Mulligan unless it's like really really good, uh, because a six card with Hercules Recall is going to generally be better than almost any seven. Uh, and then my sixth card from there, I just have to have start evaluating a, a lot differently. Obviously, if it doesn't have a Hercules Recall, now I'm just like, well, uh, hope this works. <laughs> right. And you know, you might be asking yourself, like, well, then why am I not just playing Affinity? And one of the reasons is that you know the issue that Mono Blue has against Affinity is not an issue that other decks have. Yeah. And you know, as we mentioned, it's not that easy to hate out Merfolk. There are not a lot of cards that specifically are like, oh, I just killed that opponent. While there are many cards that do that to Affinity. So you know, if you're playing Merfolk to make it more resilient to the rest of the field, not necessarily to the affinity opponents. And the affinity opponent is just like, well, I attack faster, but I can get just murdered by Shatter Sprue or the many cards we mentioned. Many yeah, cards. affinity is definitely more of a glass cannon than Merfolk, which can, in, in many ways, a Merfolk deck can sometimes imitate a Jund deck. And, you know, being yeah. a mid-range deck, you know, I've got Dismembers, I've got Silver Galadip instead of Dark Confidant, I've got my Master of Waves as, like, my Tarmogoyfest kind of guy, but obviously I can just play a bunch of creatures, like, it... It can seem like very mid Master of Waves feels like Bloodbraid Elf kind of used to feel. Yeah, like, yeah. it's... It's a, it's obviously like a Huntmaster of the Fells analogy as well. So like the deck can feel very mid rangey, and it can also have some of those very aggressive nut draws that give you early game wins. But you can grind people out too because your cards really, they're just decent creatures. Uh, and Affinity, of course, is generally going to prey on mid range decks. Like even Jun doesn't boast, at least I should say, the black green variants of Jun do not boast favorable matchups uh, against Affinity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know. And Jun gets access to slightly better sideboard cards because of Way better, yeah. Yeah, what it comes down to. And one of the things you are hurting yourself by playing a monocolor, you gain the fact that Blood Moon does nothing to you, that the fact that your you know, mana base is just always going to be going in your favor, for losing the fact that you know you can very easily just not have sideboard card availability problems. Yeah. You have sideboard card availability problems. Now, one of the strategies that I've seen some Merfolk players run recently, which I think might be becoming much better is that they actually run white cards. Uh, you can run Wanderwine Hub, which is a Merfolk-themed tribal land, pretty close to a free untapped blue-white source, uh, Sea Chrome Coast, which coming down as early as it usually does in the deck, also very close to free. And now that we have Flooded Strand from Concept Arc here, you've got an actual blue-white fetch land, which we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if you would want to run a Plains and max out the Flooded Strand, so maybe it doesn't matter, but it's an option now. I mean, you can play... I mean, yes, it, it mitigates your electoral, but you can also just play um, Hollowed Fountain. Yeah, what I was saying is, like, Flooded Strand only matters if you can run a Plains. Otherwise, right, Scalding right, Tarn right, and Misty right. were the same. Got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... You can run these white cards, uh, and Path to Exile is not a straight upgrade over Dismember, in my opinion, because it actually does matter giving them land sometimes, right. and in many matchups, like, I like being able to Dismember a Mana Dork on turn you, one, which I can never do with a Path. Right. You're aggressive enough where your life total matters less right. normally than in other decks where Path to Exile is just better. Yeah. Uh, the I would imagine the big game, and we've talked about this card many a time, but Stony Silence out yeah. of the board just has to Stony be Silence out of the house. sideboard is easily, I think, the biggest selling point to Splashing White into Merfolk. Uh, there is another Merfolk you can play once you go white, which is Sig, River Guide. Uh, he's a white-blue 2-2 who I believe he naturally has Island Walk, but he can also give uh, Pro Color and Island Walk to a Merfolk for one no white, which is kind of handy. He's mostly like a Cure that costs mana, uh, but he's not a total brick, and he's relatively cheap at two mana. So 
he's a reasonable card to run. I'm not personally a fan, but I would understand people being a fan. It's, right. He's reasonable. And maybe he's something to bring in as your Kira's four and five, you know, or three and four in, from the side where he's something that can, you know, hurt, you know, removal decks. The way I think you would probably reverse that. Like, if you were going to play Sig, I think you would want him in the main since he's the Merfolk and then mm -hmm. be bringing in the Kira's against the decks that are more vulnerable to her. Because you actually sideboard Kira out a lot. Right. Like, if they're not trying to Lightning Bolt my creatures... Uh, I pretty much always board out Kira, and even if they are, I still might be boarding her out, like against Jund, because they're going to bring in, they already have Abrupt Decay, and they're going to bring in things like Anger of the Gods or Jund Charm, and that's just not where you want to be with a Kira. So it's pretty mediocre in those matchups as well. It's mostly going to be huge against Snapcaster Mage Laden decks, because they have very few profitable ways to interact with her other than countering her outright. Next, uh, I want to take out. Actually, these are two new additions to the gauntlet. These are two decks that I think are go are, are have already proven themselves as, on right <laughs> efficient, important things you need to learn how to deal with. Uh, the first one I think is a mainstay at least. I don't think bannings are going to hurt it as much, and that is uh, blue red delver. Yeah, blue red delver is a deck that I have consistently shown a complete and total lack of respect towards, and I I frankly continue to do that really, although it is. I legitimately now understand it is a better deck than I thought it was. That doesn't necessarily make it good, if that makes any right. sense. I think, I think part of its strength is the new cards again. I think, yeah, I think I the agree. fact that it now has Delver 2.0, or, or at least, you know, 0.50, where it's like, it's, yeah, it's not it's nearly as good as Delver, but, you know, the, the one red uh, prowess creature with haste 1-2 is, is very strong. Um, Monastery Swift Spear, yep. yeah. And, you know, that plus, you know, Treasure Cruise, which is Ancestral Recall in a deck where your most of your spells you're cycling into your graveyard, starts to make this deck into a much more efficient beast than it was pre these cards existing. Yeah, this modern deck is actually a uh, sort of a modern incarnation of a legacy deck. Uh, Blue Red Delver was a legacy deck for quite a while. Uh, tier 2, but, you know, once you shift over modern, it kept a lot of its cards and... It's a reasonable deck. Like, I, I've talked a lot of smack, but it, it is a reasonable deck. Uh, Caleb Durward specifically has done a lot of good work with that archetype, I think. And I think he has two or three PTQ top eights with it last season and just lamented he hadn't been playing it sooner because he right. feels sure he would have won one if he'd been playing it the whole time. And and, and that's before the concentration yeah. cards were added. And it is definitely the deck that just most immediately is ready to take advantage of Treasure Cruise, for sure. Uh, Dig Through Time is a possibility as well, although I think it would prefer Cruise just because its cards are so cheap. Uh, yeah. much like the Legacy equivalent, which most recently added Treasure Cruise and won a Legacy Open up in New Jersey, uh, I feel like we'll see something very similar happen uh, in Modern. I, I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, Dig Through Time is a card I would be considering in all these decks if Treasure Cruise gets banned. Sure, I think Dig Through Time is better in Standard or in Combo decks, but, you know, Treasure Cruise is better right now, and but it's possible that it'll go away. Now, I think, I think for... Dig Through Time is generally a better card. Uh, like, the effect is just Agreed. stronger. Uh, but they're, the mitigating circumstances of Treasure Cruise costing one mana uh, is, is a pretty big deal. And also, you know, if I'm going to draw three spells and I'm playing the Blue-Red Delver deck, I, I really would rather get three spells than two spells, I think. But most of the time, I think Dig Through Time is going to be more powerful. I think, and this is kind of a side note, but we have time, uh, that the difference between the two is how important, how consistent is my deck? So yeah. if, if in Delver, where most of your deck is other cantrips or burn spells or creature, you know, just ways to get in there... Any specific two cards isn't as important as just a large amount of cards that are playable, where, you know, dig through time in other decks, and in most other decks where I do think it's stronger, the just two specific cards are when it really starts mattering. When I'm like, any any two cards, I'd rather have three cards. If I'm like, I need these two cards, I'd rather have dig through time. Yeah, which is why I think we're going to see dig through time popularized most in combo decks. Uh, I think it's a 
a really dangerous kind of card to give Scapeshift and Splinter Twin, uh, among others. I'm, I'm really curious to see how it plays out, but it feels like something that I'm like, red alert. I think I think it completely just takes out uh, Telling Time and and oh yeah yeah those cards yeah there there were there were two mana. Dig cards that were being played, and yeah, those are not going to be played. And, and there's also upside, even outside of just being incredible card drawing spells. Uh, they shrink Tarmogoyfs. Like these right. cards, legitimately shrink Tarmogoyf, right. which is inc- a completely a, will, a, a reason a to total do free roll, yeah. but also awesome. <laughs> um, now back to Merfolk and its uh, Delver matchup. One of the things I'd imagine is hard for Merfolk is this is a, a deck that has the removal suite to possibly be able to take stuff out, at least in game one. Yeah, this is a Snapcaster Bolt deck, so you have to watch out for that. Uh, one of the upsides is it's a Permission Light deck. Uh, it doesn't really have a, a lot, and what it does have, it's probably going to be boarding out because Permission is horrible against Merfolk, just in general. Right. Uh, they're going to be looking for other cards. One of the downsides is, among those other cards, are frequently going to be their Affinity Hate. It's going to come in against you to kill your Aether Vials because that's one of the ways they can slow you down. Right. Uh, but really, the big whammy is that this deck has very, very few answers to a Master of Waves. Right. If you can resolve one, it will usually just sit there. I think a bigger whammy is that this deck is half islands. And that's, <laughs> and that's, it, that you. does matter, but because they're trying to kill all your guys so true, much, true, true. like it, it, they do target the lords. Relevant. Yeah, they're, they're bolting your lords pretty aggressively because they have young Pyromancer tokens to trade with everything that's not a lord, basically, uh, as, or everything as long as a lord's not in play. Uh, but Master of Waves completely flips that over. If a Master of Waves resolves for any reasonable amount, uh, it can turn back even the most absurd board states. Like they're, you know, they can have a young pirate center like four tokens on. You're just like, all right, Master of Waves, that's better than that. And they're right. like, all right, well, I'll stop attacking now. And you both just go into this detente. Except, you know, if you can find another Master of Waves, all of a sudden you get to start attacking again right. because you get all of these tokens and they're all three twos. So. The matchup, the Master of Waves is borderline unanswerable for them. I've only played it a few times, and every time I just eventually got a Master of Waves, and they, like, rolled over almost on the spot to die. Uh, that said, they're the faster deck, so they can storm you real quick right out the gates. Uh, one of the matches I, I won actually involved me peeling a, the one Vapor Snag in my deck to keep a Vendillion click from icing me, because <laughs> otherwise I was stone dead, uh, and nothing else would work. You know, I was at exactly right. the, the life, so... Uh, it, it can be a close matchup, but you have a real genuine haymaker, and they do not. They just have a deck full of... Their deck has more card advantage, they have removal, they have the ability to try and pick you apart, but at the end of the day, like, if you can just get to multiple copies of Master of Waves, or, you know, stick a Cura, Cura is also incredibly strong, right. uh, then you can get them. One of the things... I don't personally board Spellskite because I'm used to people boarding an artifact removal against me in many cases, and I don't want to board into that. Uh, which is sort of the reverse of the next level sideboarding <laughs> we were talking about before. Uh, but one of the cool combos you can set up is Spellskite and uh, Kira, Great Glass Spinner, because with those two in play, you can essentially pay two life to counter any spell or ability that would target a creature, which is a handy trick. Right. Uh, um, something I'd imagine is one of the, the strengths, I feel, is that a combination of Kira and Masterways makes it you basically have pre-sided boarded against them six cards. And all of them are just backbreaking for them. Yeah. One um, of the reasons I liked the deck in the first place that I started playing Merfolk was playing a turn three Kira and then a turn four Master of Waves just seemed like an insane lead-in. Right. Uh, you know, like I get eight power, and if they target my Master of Waves, the first one is countered. So they have to have two ways to kill a Master of Waves, which is already a really tall right, order. Like, right. many, many decks don't have one. Yeah. I, I think in the format, Path and Dismember are the only two ones. And Dismember yeah. is going to cost them a lot of life to accomplish. And Path... 
they can only have so many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And then you saw the and play, whatever else you were doing. It's a massive stressor. Uh, so that that was one of the reasons I liked the deck. It turned out that Kira is actually less impressive than I expected, but in this matchup, she's muy right. bueno. Very right, good. Right, right. <laughs> um, and the last one of our gauntlet, the last new deck, and possibly a friend of ours only for a short time, <laughs> Jeskai Ascendancy Combo. Yeah, I honestly, you know, obviously I haven't played this matchup, so I don't know exactly how it would go. I imagine that in, I imagine that the Merfolk deck is probably a favorite based on my build. Uh, I'm running four Dismember in the main deck with a Vapor Snag, so that's five ways to interact with a turn one mana creature. That's pretty good. Uh, you can run more. Curse Catcher itself is obviously a form of w- delaying them. You can actually right. counter a turn to Glittering Wish with a Curse Catcher. Very strong in the matchup. And it's good in almost every combo matchup, so you, you have that going for you as well. Uh, and then in the sideboard, I'm packing Spell Pierces and Swan Songs, which are also very difficult cards for them to answer. And, and the ability of the Merfolk deck to play creatures via Vial while simultaneously holding open uh, the ability to counter some spells, that's exactly what the Jeskai Ascendancy deck isn't going to want to see. You don't want people who can present pressure and disruption simultaneously. That's the nightmare. Right. So right. that seems like exactly what Merfolk does in the matchup, and I feel like Merfolk has to at least have the edge, if not be like a giant favorite. I can also imagine that you know a combination of both, um, or just really specifically spreading seasons is also very strong against them. You know, Ascendancy is sure, a four-color sure. deck. It, it, you can definitely that, get them. Right, and if you're already, you know, you know you're targeting their first-turn birds and you follow it up with the spreading seas, they're going to have a huge problem against you. Yeah, so uh, like I said, haven't played it at all, but of the decks in Modern, I imagine that Merfolk is one of the better positioned right. uh, against Jeskai Ascendancy. I, I can, you know, I can bring up the other side of it. It's possible that it might be a problem because you're a... As interactive decks go, you're pretty low, and Jeskai Ascendancy is very, very, very quick. And we mentioned that other decks that can race Merfolk are the problems they can kind of have. I think that it's something that you want to maybe for sure test against for now, and at least yeah. make you know make sure you know how to handle the play against the deck. But I do see Merfolk having a few edges against that deck that most decks out there don't really have. Yeah, having a couple creatures that are just really nice against, like having a Curse Catcher, for example. Like nobody else has a card like Curse Catcher, really. Right. Uh, the only other decks that ever do are like the Green White Hate Bears decks, and Athalia is obviously like the most backbreaking thing you can probably do to the Jeskai Ascendancy deck. So that deck is probably better than Merfolk in the matchup, but at the same time, they're very similar decks. They're all about playing out these creatures that you know both kind of help each other beat down and also slow the opponent down a little bit. Uh, except the difference is here, the Merfolk deck has access to some actual spell-based disruption in Spell Pierces, Swan Songs, and Dismembers, which seems like it would be a lot. All right, so that's, you know, that's kind of covering Merfolk. So, you know, I want to bring up first that if any of you guys are coming to GPLA this weekend, both me and Glenn are going to be there, as well as our friends from the Command Cast, uh, Josh and Jimmy, are also going to be yep, at GPLA. Yep. Hopefully throw down uh, some 100-card games, maybe. Oh, maybe. yeah. That'll be, you know, EDH is a format, though. We <laughs> deride it. We love it. So <laughs> we will be there playing that and Standard, and we look forward to seeing you guys. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the command cast, you can make sure to go check that out. It is our sister podcast, both also at rocketjump.com. Um, Jimmy and Josh do some great content there. Uh, also, you know, the shout out VGHS, Video Game High School. It just uh, released its first episode of its last season this Monday. Uh, you know, Rocket Jump, all the same site. So, you know, go check that out if you haven't watched it. It's a pretty awesome show about a bunch of people playing video games in yeah. school. <laughs> I actually had not seen Video Game High School until I started uh, podcasting with Jimmy. And, like, after that, I was like, oh, well, you know, check it out. It's this thing, it, right? right? So, and, yeah, it's great. Like, I, right? it was way more than I was expecting. It's good on so many levels. They're so funny. 
I can genuinely recommend it. I, gen <laughs> I genuinely recommend it to my friends already, so you're getting the recommendation as I mean, well. The best description, actually, the way before I met Jimmy, my younger sister recommended the show to me. <laughs> and <laughs> she funny. said it's Harry Potter, but with video games. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very similar to that, but it's it's so much funnier. Oh, yeah, way, yeah, it's, way, 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 way they, more witty, The writing way is smarter, really good, right. yeah. I've, I've been consistently impressed, and uh, the, the actors are also all, all just great. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, lastly, before we sign off completely, I want to tell you guys, uh, please in the comments below on the webpage or on Twitter, uh, we want to hear what your favorite tribe is. You know, we talked about Merfolk today. There's, we also mentioned, uh, goblins and elves. There's a bunch of other ones in the history Human, of Human, human's a great tribe. Yeah, human's a great tribe. <laughs> zombie, Racist. zombie's a <laughs> Um, so Dead yeah. humans, that would be the zombie tribe. <laughs> so humans send us dead. on Twitter or in the comments below. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, this is Alex Kessler. And Glenn Jones. Thank you guys for listening. See you next week. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at Kess Wiley and at Secluded Glenn. See you later, alligator. <laughs>